0: Hello everyone and welcome to Histories of the Unexpected. We've got a little bonus episode for you today. James and I recorded last week um, an episode on the history of humans, which we thoroughly enjoyed. Um, And I have managed to get my friend Adam Rutherford to meet me in London and to sit down and have an interview, have a discussion about the history of humans James, since we last recorded Humans last week, has anything burst into your massive brain or, or out of your things, massive brain?
2: Things burst in my massive brain and, and eject mm-hmm. forth. Um, now I've just been thinking about, you know, what defines, what has historically defined people as human. You know, and there was a time when, you know, people would have thought that use of tools, yeah. you know, is what defines somebody as, people as human, the act of sort mm-hmm. of... And storing, and, and seeking shelter, making shelter. Um, the storing is in- interesting, isn't it? Because that's yeah. about planning for the future. Yeah, um, making clothing, that, that kind of thing. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit last week about recording, recording information in in various ways, um, art and music. Yep. you know, are things that, and, and, and culture define us as use of fire. Um, but, but I mean, you know, there are there are researchers who who see things very differently if you take Adam Rutherford's uh, new book for him uh, what distinguishes people uh, what distinguishes humans from animals because a lot of recent research has shown um, has shown animals using tools uh, for example and I think here quite clearly about you know, the work that David Attenborough has done with, with primates and, and you know using using rocks to smash open nuts and things like that. It's eroded a lot of the sort of distinctions between animals and humans, and so you know this idea of communication uh, and 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 it's not it's not just communication because I think animals communicate all the time, but I think it's this idea of of communication and recording. That I think is, you know, is interesting.
0: I think the point here is that history and science live side by side, and yes. therefore, our understanding of what it is to be human has its own history, and it has changed and it has transformed, hasn't it? Yes. Um, and it's at a very interesting stage now. Yes. Um, and this is where Adam's come along, and he's tried to put humans back towards, back into that picture. Back yes. into, back into the, yes. the animal side of things, yes. rather than the the seeing humans as unique. The unique side of things, so so there's a there's a there's a fascinating history there into which this book fits. Yes. Well, um, everyone, sit down and imagine me and Adam sitting on a bench outside the Oval cricket ground in the sun. Here we are. I'm going to start off by just asking you why why you chose to write the book. So, the the, the book before this, which was called A Brief
1: History of Everyone Who Ever Lived, was was a was really. I mean, I describe it as being a history book because it is. It was about. Um, using dna i 'm geneticist it was about using genetics and DNA to retell and to reanalyze uh, historical narratives um, and, and in, in that, I was talking about sort of two million years worth of prehistory but also what genetics tells us about recent history as well um, and the book of humans is is pretty much a direct sequel to it and it came about from a single sentence that I wrote in the in the um, in the final chapter, which accidentally turned out to be a film quote, so I, I, I accidentally quote films all the time. Okay. I, I have very few original <laughs> thoughts. <laughs> and, okay. and I wrote a line which was, <coughs> it was describing a particular phenomenon, which about human evolution, which I'm interested in, which is and the line was, um, everybody is special, which is another way of
0: saying that nobody is. Yes. Now, what film is that from? You've got kids. Um, it is from uh, The Incredibles. Yes, it is. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Possibly Incredibles too. It's Incredibles 1. It's oh, Dash. Yeah, okay. Dash from The Incredibles. Yeah. <laughs> Thank so, you very much, everyone. Yeah,
1: well done. <laughs> so I wrote this down and, and uh, my editor wrote back saying I like the way you've quoted The Incredibles in the final. And I was like, what? Did I? I didn't realise. Anyway, so th- that, that became the sort of, uh, you know what it's like when you're writing, it, it became the, the, the kernel of an idea that I couldn't shake, which was the notion of human exceptionalism. Yeah. So we are, we're incredible. We're an incredible species, and we're we're very unusual. But at the same time, the whole trajectory of science has been to uh, to erode the pedestal that we put ourselves on, um, and to place us back within nature. And so that's, you know, Copernicus puts puts the Earth as not. Uh, a specially created place at the centre of the universe but yep. yet another planet around a fairly average sun.
0: That's quite disappointing for some people, isn't <laughs> yeah,
1: it? Well, it <laughs> is, <laughs> I suppose, if that's your sensibility. And then Darwin does it again in, in 1859 or, or more precisely in 1871 by revealing the mechanism of, of evolution which includes us. And so that specialness has been eroded by science. We're not specially created. And yet, and this is the... this is. You know, we are the paradox of of evolution because we're incredible, but at the same time, we're exactly part of evolution on the same evolutionary tree as, you know, the daisies and the grass in front of us, and, and that vizsla over there is very excitable.
0: Yeah, I mean, so looking at it one way, the one way you can think about humans is what we're talking about now: is that this book exists in a history of other books who have written about humans and trying to understand who we are and what we are. So there's a historiography there, so you can pull it apart that way, can't we?
1: Absolutely, and I'm, I'm pretty critical of a lot of, uh, well, many thousands of years' worth of history of people who have applied what, what, some, what we sometimes describe as uniqueness theory. So the, the question is, the central question is, what is it in our evolutionary history that's changed on the trajectory from being just another ape to being the types of apes that that we that we recognize today that are capable of doing the things that we're doing right now um and the uniqueness theories often say things like well it it is one thing so you know there's a a switch flips whether that's genetic or something cultural some people have suggested that it was our uh, controlled use of fire darwin thought that some people thought it was tool use um speech and language you know you identify all the things that are sort of categorically and qualitatively different between us and other animals. And then you build a thesis around that, saying, well, this is the thing that happened. Now, in all of my work, I've sort of rejected um, the very simplistic narratives because, well, you know, history doesn't work like that, evolution doesn't work like that, humans don't work like that. And I think that I like to embrace the complexity and also not come up with definitive Answers.
0: Yeah, I think one of the key things as well is this m- notion of change. I was thinking about when I was reading the book. I was thinking about the way that science can help history and history can help science. Yeah, and, and one of the interesting things when you talk about the great leap forward, the change from Neanderthals and we go to Homo sapiens, and then something magical happens at some point, and it, uh, trying to identify that actually it wasn't it wasn't a revolution. It was a a long long process, and then a lot of the cultural developments might have happened, not necessarily in one instance, in one kind of thunderbolt, but happen at different, at different you know, times and at different locations. I think that's really important, and it can sort of, you can see how things are shared, and how... Uh, it's, it's like a way of explaining things, isn't it? Well,
1: I think one of the fundamental problems, which you've just identified perfectly there, is we just don't have the language to describe the evolutionary history in the same way that we talk about history history. So when we're talking about timescales, which are unimaginable, when we talk about migration... So, you know, one of the standard truisms of of evolutionary history is that Homo sapiens is an African species and a a small proportion of humans migrated out of Africa. It's called the Out of Africa hypothesis around 70 or 80,000 years ago. Now, when we say things like migration... We think of that in contemporary terms or in historical terms, that they were, you know, the migration of the Angles and the Saxons to to, um, East Anglia in in the early Middle Ages, or we think of Syrian refugees crossing the Mediterranean today. The migration that was the out-of-Africa migration from which the population of the world was founded outside of Africa took maybe five or 10,000 years at a rate of about you know, a mile every century. Yeah. I mean, like, people fall faster than that. <laughs> that's, that's, we just don't have the language to describe this sort of transition. So people use terms like the cognitive revolution because obviously we have different mental capabilities from our nearest cousins, which are uh, chimpanzees or bonobos. But we've been separated from chimpanzees and bonobos for something like seven or eight million years. And that change, according to the archaeological record and also the mathematical models that we use... In us, in our lineage itself, probably took ten thousand years. Yeah. That's not, you know, that's ten thousand years is longer than the whole of recorded history.
0: <laughs> and yet, there's so many themes which appear in this book which share with any kind of history, written historical period that you might write about. I agree. You know, that's, that's, I think, absolutely fascinating. Whether I mean, there are so many things you can talk about, but clothing is one. You know, fashion, the way people think, the way people behave. Um, let's, you know, just just briefly, what am I wearing today? Describe what I'm wearing today.
1: You, you're wearing the attire of a man who's going to watch England beat <laughs> South Africa at the Oval.
0: <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, I, when, I, when I got up this morning, I put my clothes on. I was like i I feel unique, but in, in a few few hours' time, when I'm sitting around with a you know thirty thousand other people, all dressed the same. Um,
1: so, yeah. but but do do the same for me. I, you know what I'm doing today. I'm going to watch a screening of a new science fiction series that I've worked on. Well,
0: you may not believe this, but um, he is wearing an orange velvet suit, a bow tie, and a striped hat. I'm
1: taking a photo at this <laughs> moment
0: to prove this, this lie. No, he's not. He's um he's 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 looking very Rutherford. Uh, Dark and mysterious. Slightly (laughs) spy-like. Standard black. Uh, But you're not wearing a tie. (laughs) I'm not. There's there's a lovely bit in your book about ties.
1: Well, so often I find that evolutionary psychology falls into the trap of being not very good science. Yeah. (laughs) And quite good storytelling. So,
0: um... This made my... uh, 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 when my feelers go up as a historian, I suddenly go, whoa, <laughs> there's a lot of historians out there that do this. Yeah, so, so I've worked a lot with
1: historians over the last few years and, you know, and, and, and spoken to you on, on, on occasions. And um, and I, I, I think that that overlap between science and history, which I find so appealing, is they're basically the same. Yeah. They're evidence-based subjects. And what was surprising to me, having not studied history in an academic sense since I was 17, um, was that there was such a range of historians, and some of them are uh, you, you know really hardcore evidence based in a way which is indistinguishable from scientists and, and I gravitate towards them and have good working relationships with people like them um, but also, also the discovery that there, that there were uh, that there are plenty of of historians out there who are less wedded to <laughs> to facts, <laughs> as yeah. far as I can tell. I don't mean to... You know, I'm not, I'm not slagging off a whole discipline here, but there's a lot of interpretation. Yeah. And there's a lot of interpretation within science as well. Now, I, I would cast evolutionary psychology as being a, an interpretive field at best. And so the tie thing... So you, you, you mentioned the tie thing when we are talking about clothing. People have suggested over, over the years that men wear standard ties, you know, Windsor knotted tie, as a power symbol because it points towards their genitals. Now, this is in the academic literature. Now, it, it takes about, it's a sort of a, appealing thought if you spend no time thinking about it. <laughs> but it's obviously nonsense.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's also when you, you know, the, the bit you write about, you know, you compare it to uh, uh, roughs. Or or bow ties, or other strange things that people wore around their necks at Uh, one time. Of
1: course, yeah, because people have only been wearing straight ties that point towards their their groins for, I don't know, a (laughs) century at tops. And it's only in the West, and it's only a proportion of men that do that. Whereas, you know, in the 16th century, wearing a giant ruff, what does... (laughs) That says something different. I I don't know what it
0: what it, no, it says. It does say something. I've always been um, bewildered by that. But there's a there's an interesting history of the neck there, which I really want to look into. Yeah, yeah. Um,
1: well, I'm sure there's some fashion historians who have good theses behind. I think it's more pernicious when dealing with um, sort of sex differences, particularly, which is a fascination of. Well, it's an important part of study of evolutionary biology anyway. But it's a, but it's a particular fascination for some evolutionary psychologists. Uh, because you can attribute, or, or if, you, if you do this badly, you can attribute all sorts of gender differences and sex differences that we see in society today. It's just made up. It's bad science. So the example I sometimes... Give, I don't give it in the book because I don't want to give him credit in a, 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 a text which should be for the long term, but I write about it... I, I've written about it in articles. Jordan Peterson, a psychologist, has, has suggested... He hasn't suggested, he has stated that women wear blusher... Because it reminds men of fruit, and I know, I mean, I'm laughing because it's it's quite difficult to say that sentence without rev- just just showing how absurd it is. Yeah. Uh, you know, he states this as a fact, and then uses this as part of his ideology to say, well, this is why you know make makeup is part of how women should present themselves, or how women feel they they should present themselves, or whatever the ideology is. Of course, just like the tie, it's it's just unsustainable, unsupportable guff. Yeah. Because, a, most fruit is not red. B, most skin tones are not white.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you can keep on going. Can't I know, you? but it's, yeah.
1: again, it's it's the it's the interpretation of. You know, just the most super. If you spend four seconds thinking about yeah. these types of things,
0: you make another good point about lipstick as well in the book. But we'll we'll move on. You've you told me your fa- your, your favourite sentence at the at the end of the book. My favourite one was "Pilot whales are not going to play the violin" or something like that, wasn't <laughs> it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or we'll possibly invent the violin.
1: Yeah. So this this was another. Um, it, it's it's an area of evolutionary history that we don't. I think we don't really talk about enough in in the public discourse, which is. Well, the assumption that everything is that all our physical capabilities are evolved for purpose, so they have they are adaptations, which is the sort of central thesis of 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 natural selection. But when you look at the bones in our hands, um, and you look at the bones in the forelimbs of say a dolphin, a bottlenose dolphin, they're virtually identical, almost bone for bone match, and we use that in textbooks to show that there is shared evolution there. But of course the bones in a dolphin's forelimbs are fused because they paddle with them and that means they can never they, they have no manual dexterity in the same way that, that we can so it's not, I'm not making a judgement on, on dolphins here at all, it just means that their evolutionary trajectory is different from ours and whereas in about uh, two and a half hours you'll be watching Maine Ali um, turn the ball like a mofo
0: Yeah. A
1: dolphin will never, ever do that. Bowl a googly. Will, a dolphin will never bowl a googly. <laughs> you yeah.
0: can state that as a fact. But, you know, the idea of dexterities, yes. that's fascinating, isn't it? And and how we, we acquire that and the actual things that we can do with our hands and the way that we use our hands.
1: So we talk about tool use a so lot in the book because that was one of the things that, um, that Darwin suggested was unique to humans but of course we know tool use is not unique to humans and in fact there's a there's a crow just over there that you can probably hear in the background. There. There it is, yeah. So, we, Caledonian crows are particularly adept at tool use and, yeah. um, and, and what we now know is that around about one percent of animals use tools are obligate tool users, which means they can't function without tools. Now, 1% doesn't sound like much, but that's literally thousands of animals. But the interesting thing is it ranges across classes. So there's, well, corvids, so there's the birds over there. Lots of mammals, so that's us and all the other great apes. Um, uh, Mollusks, so octopuses, also use use tools. Uh, um, My favourite example is the boxer crab. Yep. Which... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> pulls up an enemy's stinging, stinging ones, in, stinging an enemy. Yes, pulls an enemy in two and uses them like boxing gloves to ward off uh, enemies. Or
0: are they stingy boxing gloves? Yes. Yeah. So that's a weapon as well as a tool.
1: It is. It is, and which is an important distinction. Weapons are a subset of tools. The, the what the the unfortunate irony of this is that. Um, when you watch videos, of which there are many online, of boxer crabs wielding their anemones they look just like cheerleaders (laughs) 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 so they're not called boxer crabs anymore they're called pom-pom crabs
0: I know (laughs) know, the crow's an interesting one as well because um, there was that um, experiment in Seattle a few years ago which you write about in your book with crows and masks, Yeah, which I love and that made me want to write a little bit, bit, bit about masks and also crows are interesting because um we now know that the Vikings kept them as pets. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah.
1: So, what were the, what were the name of um, Odin's two crows? They had excellent names. Oh yes.
0: Um, I've just well, written a book were, about the Vikings, were, so I should know this, but, were, but I, I don't. They were ravens, not crows, weren't they? Yeah. Anyway. Um, they, Roman, ravens are corvids. They are. Yeah, so the corvid family. They? they found lots of um, corvid bones in and around domestic settings uh, in Viking York. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: So um, let's go back to this Seattle experiment, which I yeah, love the so. Of.
1: So, um, so w- w- one of. Yeah, so one of the key things that is different between us and other animals is that we, we transmit, and this is kind of the key idea in the book, we transmit ideas and we transmit information between individuals and between populations all the time, and we're doing it now. Every time we, we communicate, we're transmitting bits of information most other animals many many animals learn but we actively teach and that's almost unique or, well, pretty much almost unique and so that is a big difference um, there are a few examples of information being transmitted in a non genetic way in animals and one of them is with Caledonian crows in, in Seattle now I, I am'm I hedge my bets a little bit on this experiment because it's terribly impressive but difficult to explain and so it needs, uh, in science, it needs to be tested further. But anyway, the experiment was this. So, Caledonian crows, they, they hang around in in urban areas as they do in the UK and some experimenters, some scientists decided to test their ability to learn human faces. So they, they did two things. One, one is they, they wore some masks
0: and ran at the crows. <laughs> Which is just so a funny the, experiment to do. Yeah, I'd love to do that.
1: And, and so the, the, these crows learn when that... When they like
0: normal masks, or like the scream mask. I don't actually know what the masks are like.
1: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but, I mean, you can have a lot of fun without you know, sort of yeah. Freddy Krueger running at them. Yeah. Anyway, they, they, they run at the crows and so they, they're perceived as a threat and the crows identify these faces as being a threat, whereas with other masks, I think they did it without masks, in fact. Humans walked through them slowly and the crows didn't scatter because they weren't a threat. And so then they, the, 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 the process by which they learn this, they go and test this again uh, a few days later a few weeks later, and the crows have learned that when they see the scary face mask, they, they should they leave. They get the hell out of dodge because yeah. it's a threat. Now what, that, that's, that's cool, it shows learning behaviour, it shows facial recognition of humans by, by a Corvids, by birds, which is interesting enough. The really weird thing is... I came back several years later to presumably a population which was not the same.
0: It was like five years later, yes,
1: wasn't it? Yeah. Yes. And they, the, the population as it was then, still recognised the scary faces compared to the non-scary faces. Now that is quite difficult to explain because it means they have managed to transmit this information about what the scary faces were, possibly transgenerationally. Yeah. Now that is the type of stuff that we do, you know, we, we teach our children um, uh, uh, things that can only be passed down from us or from peers and only a few animals do that and it is possible we think that the Caledonian crows are doing that with this, this bizarre scary faces. Yeah. I and
0: mean, the communication is an interesting, interesting part of, of how, what, what makes us unique but we do know that other animals communicate to each other in very sophisticated ways. Um, but yeah. the, the recognition is interesting I mean just that little experiment you know, whether or not it's got any, any merit um, the idea of actually recognising threats or recognising anything is fascinating and you could, you could definitely write a little history of recognition or at least of, of what we understand about recognition
1: yeah so, so the, I, mean, I, th- I think this is a really significant not moment but part of our evolution our cognitive evolution and centred around a psychological concept which we call agency detection and so, uh, you know how we see, we see faces all the time, right? And we see faces in things that uh, don't have faces, but we associate, you know, people see the face of Jesus in a piece of toast or, yeah. or uh, in clouds, um, and it's, or houses that look a bit like Hitler. Um, and that's quite funny. But it, it, it's indicative of the amount of brain space that we devote to recognising faces and the importance of the face in our... In, in our social evolution and our social behaviour.
0: Let's just finish up with one bit which I really, really loved, because um, this, um, I thought it was a real mixture of science and history and, and a fabulous bit about the history of editing as well. So there were these penguins, right, <laughs> in the Antarctic, <laughs> oh, yes, well, there go. the Adelaide <laughs> penguins, and uh, so this is on Scott's last fateful venture south, yeah, 1910, 1912. And the scientist George Levick, Levick? Levick. Uh, Levick. Think, George yeah, Levick yeah. Uh, is writing about what these penguins are getting up to. And all he can do is he can describe them as astonishing <laughs> depravity. Yeah. And uh, he then goes on, he writes about the male penguins as hooligan bands of half a dozen or more that hang about the outskirts of the knolls, whose inhabitants they annoy yeah. by their constant acts of depravity. Now, what's great about this is he doesn't actually describe what's going on. And they only eventually describe what's <laughs> going on. In a later, larger report, so the, the main report's released to the public, but there's another bit which is added to it. It's written in Greek yep. and then it's made available only to a select group of stout minded British gentlemen scientists. So the question to you listeners is yep. what were these penguins doing?
1: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is an over 18 podcast. No, no, it's just biology. I, I, it's, it's part of a sector's long section in the book about sex. Um, similar to what we talked about earlier about attributing human behaviour to, to having evolutionary origins with some of our and the behaviour that talk about our sexual so, habits which are unusual all, Ask any 13 year old who's doing GCSE biology what the purpose of sex is, and to make a new human three groups. Except, when you crunch the numbers on this uh, all those... it works out as t- for Britain I think by extension, um, world, around about one in a thousand sexual acts that could result in conception actually does. So that's not significant in statistical terms. So we've decoupled sex from reproduction, and I go into some more details in the book, but in exploring this idea that maybe we are the only creature that has done this, that has non-reproductive sex, well, the answer turns out to be a massive no. Homosexuality, well, homosexual behaviour in the animal kingdom is rife, wide, widespread, and everywhere. But also other non-reproductive
0: sexual acts, such as. I beep, beep, beep. I think we're going to leave it because I want everyone to get in touch and to either buy Adam's book <laughs> and then and then you can find it, or, or um guess. Uh, but it's not pretty. <laughs>
1: Anyone who follows me on Twitter will know that I I have I've introduced a new hashtag. Yesterday was.
0: What what is your handle on Twitter?
1: Oh, it's just Adam Rutherford. Uh, but Yesterday was. Um, well, it's not in reference to the penguins, but it's, it, it's, I talk, there's, a bit of, there's a section in the book which is about sea otters, who are horrible, oh, I read that horrible bit. creatures. They are. And yesterday was World Otter Day, so I was constantly <laughs> getting thrown pictures of, of incredibly cute otters, because they are incredibly cute, but my, uh, my agent has given me the hashtag... Otter vibe police, which I'm now using quite liberally, because every time someone tweets me a picture of it, some baby officers holding hands or cracking nuts on their tummies or doing super cute things like that, I feel obliged to tell them what officers actually get up to, which is horrific. <laughs> not worse than that. Murdery, drowny, necrophiliac. <laughs>
0: Um, Anyway, Adam, that was wonderful. And I think the key thing here is by looking at science, by looking at these wonderful crossover books, by talking to people like Adam, um, you can open up all sorts of wonderful ways to thinking about the past. So, Adam, I have thoroughly enjoyed that. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Sam.
1: And good timing, because that's...
2: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer.
2: that you were talking about, because I think what what he's getting at there, what you're both getting at there, is how we form knowledge. And in some ways, science and history operate in the same way with evidence. Um, But if you think about the way in which historians traditionally operate, they do work in a way that is different from scientists, because scientists will go out with a hypothesis to test... So they would go out and say sort of like I believe that um, all chimpanzees are pink Uh, and then they will test that as a hypothesis, you know, going out and spotting pink chimpanzees and finding out that actually there are very few pink chimpanzees. Um, The way in which historians work is different from that. Certainly the way that traditionally uh, what you call empirical historians operate like Geoffrey Elton who I was talking about earlier on. You don't go out with a hypothesis which is actually what Um, distinguishes traditional historians from say social scientists or scientists you don't go out and say uh, the French Revolution was caused because of this and then test it what you do is you go to the source materials and you read as widely as you can and then by a process of magic historical magic uh, you come up with the answer Um, it's the other way around so does that sort
0: of make sense? Sort of makes sense. Sort of
2: makes sense. Yeah,
0: sort of makes sense. And uh, I think that's something we need to come back to. The different ways and methods and wiles of being a historian. Yes. Because that's all to do with different periods and different periods having bigger gaps. So some periods of history you're blessed with an enormous amount of material and others you are not. Yes, And there's a creative art to it. Yes. But that doesn't mean making it up. (laughs) No, no.
2: And I think one of the other things that came out of the interview for me is that how relatively recent our knowledge about early humans is. Um, You know, and it it postdates, say, Darwin's The Origin of Species, uh, which was um, published in 1859, I think, something like that. And Darwin was writing about animals at this point and natural selection. And while you could see that there is sort of, that humans, um, you know, that there is variation, hereditary variation in most generations, Uh, some individuals have more children than others, that kind of thing. Um, You know, there's very, there was very little evidence that Darwin could go on to actually write about humans in that. And friends, you know, were pushing him, to write about humans. Um and he said um in a letter to a friend, I think I shall avoid the whole subject as so surrounded with prejudices, though I fully admit that it is the highest and most interesting problem for the naturalist. I mean basically because so few fossils had been found. And what you have immediately after is the sort of is discovery of early human fossils. And then you and then He publishes in The Descent of Man and Selection in Relation to Sex in 1871 some sort of new analysis based on this.
0: No, you're absolutely right. And it means there's so much more exciting material to come out and hopefully more interaction with scientists and historians.
2: Absolutely. Yeah,
0: I find it so refreshing talking to someone who wasn't a historian. That's not an insult yes. to you, James. No, no, I, uh,
2: <laughs> no, 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 I, I, wear, I wear many hats. Yes. Uh, historian, uh, literary scholar as well, material culture person, uh, glove expert. Um, what, else, what, other, what other hats do I have? That might be it. Gender,
0: gender scholar. <laughs> Um, what else? I'm, I'm sure I can think of more. Um, thank you all for listening. Thank you for listening. Um, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow Histories of the Unexpected on Twitter at UnexpectedPod. Do please check out the website, historiesoftheunexpected.com. It's got all sorts of stuff on our books and our live shows coming up. And please, please, if you have the odd dollar per month to spare support us you can find us on patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected Um, we really need uh, as much financial help as we can to keep these mics turned on it takes us a considerable amount of time to do our recordings and we have to pay for the equipment and studios and editing um, and anything you can offer us per month would be hugely
2: gratefully received that would be wonderful thank you very much if you can if not we fully understand and we will try and keep going (laughs) thanks
0: everyone thanks bye